Opportunity is not equally distributed. To every black entrepreneur listening, I want to make sure you have the tools and resources you need to grab your next opportunity. That's why I'm telling you about the One Million Black Businesses Initiative. The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale one million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of six million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and an extended free Shopify trial. Shopify has made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says... The one million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Chart your own path for business success with the one million black businesses initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at Shopify.com slash black print all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash black print. Everyone deserves a chance in the driver's seat. For GM and Revolt, that means leading the way on the road to an all-electric future and envisioning a world with zero crashes, zero tailpipe emissions, and zero congestion. GM's committed to making EVs accessible for everybody. That means you too. So what are you waiting for? GM's got the keys. You grab the wheel. Learn more about an all-electric future and the 000 initiative at GM.com. GM, everybody in. But for that shift, it was, am I going to be mad at myself if I never try? Mm. Because of that confidence I have that I'm going to figure it out, I was like, okay, I can try this. And if I fail, I can always get back here. Mm. But it feels like this might be what I'm special at. My name is Datavio Samuels, and welcome to The Black Print, where I sit with the innovators, disruptors and change makers laying the groundwork for the next generation of cultural leaders. This is the black print. Man, oh man, we've got a long journey together. So it's nice to see you, man. I'm so excited uh, to have you on this show. I'm excited for you to be the first conversation. Who knows, you know, you might be the 20th airing of an episode, <laughs> but you're the first conversation. And um, it's important to me that you were here for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I just think you have a story. You've done so much in and for the culture that I don't think people know. And so um, excited about people being able to hear your origin story. And then even when I just think about myself, 
Um, you've been so critical to my own personal mm-hmm. origin story, right? Whether you want to talk about pledging me at Duke and, and Kappa. <laughs> Don't want to uh, talk about that. Okay. <laughs> you recruited me to come work at Global Hue, which like was an amazing, amazing run, which I, yeah. you know, hope to talk a lot about that. And uh, I'm just excited to have you, brother. So yeah, thank man. you for making the time. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. So we're going to start from the beginning, man. We're going right. to go to the tippy top, <laughs> uh, especially because, again, there might be a lot of people who don't know who you are and yeah. what you've done. So can you just tell me a little bit about your journey? Where does right. Rob come from? Where's, where did Rob land? What right. are you doing now? Yeah, I mean, uh, grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, um, which is the still... The A. We uh, building in the A, man. <laughs> uh, such an important part of who I am growing up in the South. And then from there... I was all over the East Coast for high school and college and law school and all of that. Um, and this particular piece of my journey really started after coming through all of that. I feel like I'm fast forwarding through yeah, a lot yeah, of stuff. Yeah, it's all but, good. Um, you know, I've always been looking for ways to be great. And mm. early on in my life, all of that was about education. Mm. You know, um, landing in a place like Duke after my father went to North Carolina Central University, which is a historically black college just a few miles away from Duke. But when he was there, like a world away. Mm -hmm. And I felt the pressure of that. Mm -hmm. I felt the pressure to try to be great. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just wanted to try to, to live up to whatever my potential was. And for me, I always felt like my potential was endless. Like if I put my mind to something, I could get there. and it was just about figuring out what that was and what that it was important mm-hmm. and all of that. So that took me in college into a place where I was looking at law school. Mm-hmm. I was looking at how to have an impact. My uncle was a lawyer. My aunt was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. It felt like I, I got into Harvard. Mm-hmm. It felt like something that was like, oh, I'm doing something important. I'm doing something people don't get a chance to do. Um, and I followed that path all the way back to Atlanta, yeah. trying to return to my roots um, to a law firm there. And um, and once I got there, it was kind of like, this might be a setup. Right. You uh-huh. know? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Um, because I was looking at the career path. I was looking at the path I was on. And even though I was young and I was new, I was looking eight or nine years mm-hmm. above me at the folks who were already doing what I was trying to do mm-hmm. and watching them on that partner track, but watching the black people get turned back mm-hmm. or told to wait mm-hmm. or take a lap and watching people change who they were in order to try to fit in in this world and still mm-hmm. not make it. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're giving up yourself and still not getting what you want. Mm-hmm. And very fast, I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. Um, and that led me to Global Hue. Um, and a lot of my life up until that point had been trying to find my place and fit in. And, and it's a game that I was always playing. And then at Global Hue, where it was a black owned company with multicultural marketing, it was the first time in my life, really, that I could feel like a layer of something come off um, where I could be myself, where everybody in the halls knew the the music I was listening to right, and, right, and the right, movie right. references I was going right, to make. Right, right. And, um, and we could have a hug in the hallway and it wasn't weird. And like just all of those things where it felt like I was at home. Mm. Um, and I just appreciated that. And that's where I started to thrive and relax and 
try to figure out who I really was. Yeah, let me let me pop in there. So Global Hue was iconic, right? right. So back in those days, you used to talk about maybe three black agencies that right. were like crushing it, right? It was Burrell, Uniworld, and Global Hue, right. right? And Global Hue was special because we made the leap from being a black agency to being the, the only multicultural agency, yeah. right? I remember walking into that building, man, the energy, the vibe, like it was incredible. Yeah. Talk about Global Hue and some of the work we were doing at Global Hue yeah. and just kind of what that energy was about. Yeah. So when I came in and I didn't know this when I came in, they had had to repitch the Chrysler account. They were mm -hmm. just the black agency for the Chrysler account. And there was a full on assault <laughs> by all these other agencies trying to steal it from them, basically. It. So they added a, a, a Latino um, ad agency. They added an Asian ad agency. They were trying to figure out how to make it all work. Mm -hmm. And when I got there, it was kind of a situation where I thought, okay, I'm joining something that already has momentum, that's building, that's going someplace. In reality, we were on the tipping point of <laughs> if we lose this, everything goes away. Headed for self-destruction. And, and, and we were on that edge for, for a long time. I mean, we were always on that edge because of what we were doing and what they would allow us to do. Um, but going there and having to figure out how to put those companies together mm. and grow that company. When I got there, it was 70 or 80 people. At our peak, we were over 300, 300 plus, yeah. in, in New York and in L.A. and in Texas and all these places. And so finding a way to grow the culture of a place that was built around the personality of our CEO, who would never take no for an answer mm -hmm. and was willing to do anything to get us in the position to do what we needed to do, building that culture of people who could handle it expanding. Mm -hmm. So when I talked to you and you were talking about Johnson & Johnson and you were like, I want to run fast, but they're telling me to slow down. And I remember telling you, I was like, this is a place where we're never going to tell you to slow down. 1,000%. And I finally found a place where everything feels possible and they will give me as much responsibility as I can handle, sometimes more, mm -hmm. and we can grow and we can build something. And so from there, landing Verizon, which was the biggest multicultural account in the country. On the planet. Yes. yes. Landing Walmart, <laughs> which is the biggest advertiser on the planet. Yeah. You know, yes. building to that place to eventually um, getting to that place where we get the Jeep general market account, where we have been doing the kind of work that touched so many people that was just like, don't just talk to black people about Jeep, talk to everybody about yeah. Jeep. And that felt like revolutionary at that time because nobody had ever been given that chance before. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, Don Coleman, I don't think it's a lot of flowers these days, but yeah. I think he deserves so Absolutely. many. Um, creating the first multicultural agency, you know, we would have claimed to be the first multicultural agency to win a total market account. Yeah. And to your point, total market, it was Jeep. And we were doing right. Jeep Global in the right. beginning. And we just took our multicultural lens and applied it to the Jeep brand. We yeah. took it from white dudes who were in the mountains you know, just going around in rivers yeah. to like black people in Jeeps in the right. hood and in the urban streets. And we just watched the business soar. And to be the ones to get that multicultural account starting as a black agency. Right. Because Absolutely. everybody else was trying to reverse engineer it from a white agency. That's right. You know, and be in control. And, you know, one of the things that Don always did, I mean, he bought his stock back in the mm -hmm. middle of a deal. He sold his stock to be part of the conglomerate and realized that that wasn't going to work for us. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of that relationship, bought his stock back and bet on himself in that environment where 
it was would have been easier to just plug yourself into the system, take your piece and go. He said, no, we're about to do something special. I'm going to buy my stock back. I'm going to 100 percent own it. And we're going to do this on our own. 100 percent. And created an ecosystem where young black, brown, yellow people could be free. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we were fully empowered. Right. Taking all of our shots. Opportunity is not equally distributed. To every black entrepreneur listening, I want to make sure you have the tools and resources you need to grab your next opportunity. That's why I'm telling you about the One Million Black Businesses Initiative. The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale one million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and an extended free Shopify trial. Shopify has made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says... The one million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Chart your own path for business success with the one million black businesses initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at Shopify.com slash black print all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash black print. So I think um, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about enabling creatives and I talk about black creatives to be their freest selves yeah. is because I grew up in that system yeah. where someone let me be my freest self. Right. right? I was 26, 27 so, years yeah. old running businesses. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, no, I, <laughs> I think I might have been 30 years old when y'all handed me the Jeep account. I was yeah. running the Jeep account in the U.S. as like a 30 year old kid. Right. Right. Um, it was such a blessing. It is opportunities before you know you're ready for them. For sure. Like I can uncle, tell you I was not ready. Yeah, no. <laughs> I felt like I was my, not my ready. My uncle uh, was, he's been general counsel at Coca-Cola. He's been, you know, he's worked in government. He's worked in all these corporations. And I was a little over a year out of law school. And I remember when I got the job at Global Hue as general counsel, a year out of law school for- <laughs> 20, Like 28-year-old GC. I was, no, I, yeah, yeah, I was crazy. not even. I was probably like 25. 25-year-old GC. You it's know, crazy. and my uncle, <laughs> my uncle was like, I wouldn't give you that responsibility to pay you that, but I guess, good luck, you know? And it was just like, but that was a place where you could figure it out. Absolutely. And there was no, I mean, there there was, there was no lawyer there when I got there. Mm -hmm. So I was better than nothing, for sure. Um, and it's just, but it's the opportunity to grow. And from being uh, general counsel, growing into operations, learning how that business worked, being part of the negotiation to buy our stock back. It was just me, Don, mm -hmm. and Interpublic Group, which is a multi-billion dollar company, being in that room to have that negotiation at the age I was, mm -hmm. um, it made it so I'm not like, I'm never going to be scared of anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Being in the small room of people, of three or four people, where you've got 300 employees trying to figure out how to do the things you need to do to keep everybody's jobs, mm -hmm. who to let go of, who to keep, 
um, how to strategize about that. I'm not going to, like, there's not a lot I'm scared of yeah. after that. I always say you, the spirit of the leader runs through the organization, and yeah. Don Coleman was an ex-football player, so right. he played smash-mouth football, <laughs> right? So everything he did, it was competition. Like, yeah. we were never going to be afraid to go into any room up against any. Yeah. We beat Wyden Kennedy, Richards Group, whoever right. it was for the Jeep business. Right. We, took, I, we took our stock back from my, we were not afraid of anything, yeah. and I think it's because we had a leader who was down to compete right. with anyone. Okay, I want to shift a little bit in this Global Hue world because at Global Hue, you had a very specific title. You were kind of like a co-COO, right? right? You were handling legal, IT, operations, all of those things. But what many people didn't know at that time was that you had a huge creative bent to who you right. were. Um, and you were doing creative work outside of the office, but people didn't know that, right. right? And so, you know, talk to me about at the time, did you want to be creative at Global Hue? Did yeah. you want to be lawyer, operations, IT, and creative? Yeah. Or were you comfortable just doing the creative stuff on the side and letting Global yeah. Hue be what yeah. it was? I mean, that kind of goes all the way back to the beginning. So growing up, I loved to read and I loved comic books and I loved television. And mm. I loved listening to stories. And so I kind of had this innate thing inside of me of how stories works and, and how stories got told in high school. Um, they really invested in teaching us how to write and be creative. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like something that I did and I liked. And then I got um, to Duke once again, which feels like, you know, my parents had gone to college, but it feels like here's our opportunity for our family to be in the big times. Mm -hmm. And when I first got there freshman year, I was taking creative writing courses and drawing courses and acting classes and all of that. And it was like, oh, no, I'm supposed to be buckling down and getting serious. So I go into public policy mm. and I think about being a lawyer. I think about going into business because it feels like that's what I'm supposed that's to do with my potential. So I put all of that stuff away for a long time. And at Global Hue, being in that creative environment again, watching our creatives come up with spots and go out and shoot them and be the people who get to play Xbox all day and have the newest tracks and get to work with Lenny Kravitz and like all of that stuff. It's just like, I know all of those things. I know how to tell a story. I know what feels right. I like, that's where I should be. Mm. But as you know, the, the, you know, the suits and the creatives are two different people. And I was as suity as they got. I was the dude who like, I felt like a cop walking into every single room I walked into, no matter how right. cool I tried to be. Right. Like I was. Cool as sneakers, but people yeah, still say like, you suited right, up. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was the man as far as they were concerned. Yeah. Uh, but. Right. The man in a bad way. Like, the man yeah, in a bad yeah, way. Yeah. Like I'm the dude who's sitting behind HR when you're about to go home. Exactly. You know, like, like nobody wants to see me. Exactly. I'm, I'm the coach that asks for your playbook when you're about to get cut from the team. Um, <laughs> And because that was my responsibility. But I knew I had this creative voice. Mm -hmm. I was building this comedic voice. I knew I wanted to get back into storytelling. And so finding a way to tell those stories. And I didn't know it was going to be television. I mm -hmm. thought it was going to be books or something. I just had these stories of worlds I wanted to see and, and things I wanted to talk about. Um, and that environment encouraged me to just start writing that stuff on the side, to put myself out there a little bit, to figure out what my voice was and start writing. And um, once I discovered television and once I had a couple of people say, you might have something here, I just kind of jumped in 
full bore. So, so let's talk about that leap. Cause I, I remember, I think maybe you called me. I don't remember if you called me. They're going to find out from the show. Like my memory is trash. <laughs> I don't remember if you called me on the phone or if you called me into the office, but I remember the conversation was, I know I recruited you to come to Detroit. Right. And I know that like, we're having a great run here, but I'm about to be deuces, right. two fingers up. Right. right. And at the time, I mean, I don't know how much money you were making, right. but y'all were making we're doing all right. a ridiculous <laughs> yeah. amount of money. And for me, it was so interesting to see someone who had a very established career, yeah. who was making more money than, I'm a guess, 99% of Americans, 98% of Americans. And you were literally willing to make the leap yeah. to go from a hundred to zero right. and start from scratch. Yeah. Tell me about what, what drove you to make that leap that there's so much risk involved yeah. in making that leap? What made you feel comfortable about making that decision? Because so many people, there are people who are making $50,000 right. a year who won't leave that to go do something that right. they love. And so what convinced you that not only should you not what convinced you to do it and that it was going to be okay if yeah. you did it? Yeah, I think it's two things. Mm -hmm. One, I don't know if I knew how big of a risk it was because I was always good at figuring it out. And I had always been able to just trust my resume. And if you let me in the door and you have a conversation with me, I know I'll get the job done. And that's what I thought this was. I thought this was, I'm going to learn how to write scripts. I'm going to make them good. Somebody's going to see them and I'll get the same opportunities that I've always had. Because when, when you go to the schools that I've been to, when you've had the jobs that I've had, people at least talk to you. Mm -hmm. And I always relied on that. Um, and what's interesting is smaller things. I don't, I don't have a big risk profile. Yeah, like, you definitely do I don't, right? I don't speed. You follow the um, rules. Yeah, I follow the rules. Yeah. But for that shift, it was... Am I going to be mad at myself if I never try? Because mm. because of that confidence I have that I'm going to figure it out. I was like, okay, I can try this. Mm. And if I fail, I can always get back here. Mm. But it feels like this might be what I'm special at. Mm. And I have to at least know if that's true or false. If it's false, I'll come back and get a regular job again. Mm -hmm. But if it's true, it might unlock something special. Mm -hmm. And I was willing to take that leap. Now, at the time, I was, look, I was married at the time. Mm -hmm. I had a five-year-old and one on the way. Um, but once again, it felt dangerous. And I didn't, there's part of me that didn't realize how much I was actually starting over, mm -hmm. that I was in my mid-30s and rewinding it back to my mid-20s, basically. 100%. Or that I watched all of my peers who had had eight, 10 years of building the same way I did get to build from 10 to 20 when I was going to start back at zero mm -hmm. and have the jobs that kids coming straight out of college are trying to get and the opportunity competing with people for the same opportunities. Um, and again, I thought I'd be able to rely on my ability and that someone was just going to slot me in. Mm -hmm. Um, but like rapidly realize it's a hustle business. Yeah. So I want to talk about that hustle, but I want to pull one theme through, right? Yeah. Like, so if you listen to your story, a lot of it is you being in places and feeling like 
you were always trying to optimize to be yeah. your best self yeah. and recognizing that certain spaces weren't going to allow you to be it, whether it was at the law firm or even at Global Hue where you were, I mean, we were touching the culture. We were yeah. creating the culture, yeah. but still you weren't feeling fully optimized, right. right? So you make this leap. Okay. So you moved to LA, yep. yeah, wife, kids, all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. You get a job immediately or no? What happens? No, uh, <laughs> no. Uh, so when I first moved out here, that was kind of the digital explosion. It was when YouTube was investing in the YouTube original yep, channel. They dumped that. $200 million yep. into real creators to try to figure out what it was. So there was money floating around town a little bit. Um, and through some of the stuff I had done, I hooked up with Reggie Hutt. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Glenn and his producing partner, Byron Phillips, from House Party and mm. Distinguished Gentlemen and Great White Hype. And like, for me, he was like one of my idols. He had made some of my favorite stuff. So I was like, it's crazy. Reggie Huddle is talking to me. Yeah. Um, and he got one of those channels. And a couple of other folks got a couple of those yeah. channels. And I was just kind of like hustling between YouTube channels to try to figure out where my place was. Mm. But I was trying to get to television. My first... Um, job of something that actually aired on television, which was that anymore, but actually aired was this little show called Breakdown, which was originally a YouTube original channel and then Bounce TV picked it up and it was just like a talking head show. But that was the first time I got to be in a place where we're doing production and we're doing pre-pro and we're working directly with stand-ups mm. and we're trying to produce a show. And it was a nightmare. Mm. Like it was all night. And it was every day. And we were there 80 hours a week to make this thing. And I was getting paid nothing mm. um, to get that job done. But I was in the game. Mm. Um, and then from that, I got into the uh, NBC Writers on the Verge program, yeah. which thousands of people apply. They chose eight. Mm -hmm. um, and that was another kind of stamp of approval of I'm on the right track. And mm -hmm. the first spec script that I wrote got me into that program. And honestly, I felt like I had made it. Mm. You know, I was like, oh, okay, I'm in this program. They're going to throw me on Parks and Rec next season <laughs> and off I go. Um, and I remember at the end of the program, I was meeting with people and I figured out an agent and all this stuff. I was like, okay, I'm good. I'm in the business. And I was like, okay, so where's the job? And they're like, oh, they got somebody in mind. And I was like, who do they have in mind? I'm in the program. It's like, there's eight of us. You know, I got to be one of those people, right? I killed this program. Um, again, just relying on my effort mm. and presence mm. and all of those things. Um, it's like, oh, they've got their writer's assistant or script coordinator or the people who have been in that room for two years waiting for this opportunity. That's who they're going to go with. And that's when I learned that it wasn't just me working hard by myself. I needed to get out there and meet people. I was coming to an industry in L.A. I didn't grow up here. I don't know anybody here. I don't know how this business works. I didn't, you know, grow up with folks. Um, so I had to build that. I had to build that trust. And when you first get out here, you think, uh, you know, oh, man, if I could just meet Kenya Barris or Shonda Rhimes, mm -hmm. I can impress them. They're going to give me a job. And that's not how it works. Right. You need to be people doing what you're doing. Right. And work your way up with them mm. and because people replace themselves when somebody's a staff Definitely. writer you need a new staff writer like who's good and then they say they're friends right, right, right? right so you don't you don't jump five rungs up the ladder and pull yours or get have somebody pull you up from there mm. it's really you work at it and you build real relationships and you find real friendships and you help people out 
And then those things, as, as you, you all come up together, that's what starts to give you a leg up. Mm-hmm. But coming out of that program, I didn't work for another year. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I literally, I was meeting the right people. I was having cool meetings and all of that. But um, I literally was ready to put a suit back on and go into business affairs. Okay, so let's do the math. Ultimately, you end up landing on Blackish, mm-hmm. right? Which was a huge deal. I remember we celebrated that. How many years did it take you to go from moving to LA to landing the role on the job at Blackish? Um, and what did you do in between? Like, I know you had a few starts and stops in right. there as well. Uh, so I started trying to get into the TV business. Coming out of NBC after a year of kind of not getting that traction and not working and doing a bunch of kind of odd jobs. Um, I got a show on NBC. Uh, it got canceled in 10, <laughs> um, which it went away yep. completely. And then I got another, got another job one. on uh, NBC and that went away <laughs> season one, two. It went away. Um, it went away really fast, even though I enjoyed it and was working hard and all of that. Um, and I wasn't moving up, mm. you know, like the first position of a writer is a staff writer. Uh, and, and my first show got canceled so quickly. They're like, oh, we need you to be a staff writer again. Mm-hmm. Uh, then that one got canceled quickly too. And I was meeting with people. Then the next staffing season comes around and I didn't get anything. Right. Um, and then after not working for a year, um, as I was saying earlier, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, do I need to go put a suit on and dust off this legal degree to pay the bills while I figure this out? Mm-hmm. Um, And I had never met anyone at CBS. And uh, my aunt had gone to law school with a woman who was the head of business affairs there. And I was like, I ain't got no shame. I'll pull out all the stops. I'll put a suit on. I hadn't worn a suit in years, right? Put on a suit, went and sat in this woman's office and was like, hey, I could work in business affairs. She's like, but you're a writer, right? I was like, yeah, I'm a writer, but I'll write at night. I'll write on the weekends. Don't worry about don't worry about the writing. I'll get that done. I just need to be on a studio lot mm. around people making something. And if I've got to read their contracts for a while to make that happen, I'll do it. Mm. She's like, no, you're a writer. Uh, I'm going to connect you with the president of the studio. And she put me in the room with him two days later. Um, at the time, she had the the DVD of Superior Donuts, which was like out of cycle is October. I hadn't worked for a calendar year. Mm. Um He's like, yeah, you're cool. Like, you should be working someplace. I can't make any promises, but you should meet with the people who are running Superior Donuts. That was on a Friday. I met with those folks on a Tuesday. I think their room started that Tuesday. I was working on that show by like the following Friday. Mm, thank was, God for like Guardian Angels. Right, like, yeah. That's like you're on the cusp of being willing to throw yourself back into yeah. the machine. Yeah. And in doing that, within three, four, five days, you and, land yourself on the show and, and because nobody, of a guardian angel. And nobody makes those calls. Nobody mm. makes the call to the lawyer thinking that that's going to get me my next staff job. You know, nobody's willing to ask that question or put themselves into that position and then take that mm. risk. And my agents had never even gotten me. You know, everybody thinks agents are the, the magic bullet. My agents had never gotten me a meeting at CBS. I was like, just put me in the room mm-hmm. over there just so I can meet them and have that as an open door. They had never done that. And um, after my meeting with the president of the studio, literally on my drive home, my agents are calling me and they're like, what the fuck did you just do at CBS? <laughs> like everybody there is calling us and asking to meet you now. Mm. I was like, yeah, I've been telling you all to give me a meeting at CBS um, and got that job by myself. And I, and 
you know, the road to blackish after that show, that show actually came back. I was a staff writer again yeah, for yeah. the third time. That show actually came back and I got to move up a little bit and I got to work with a couple people I had worked with before and I got to learn the system and build some trust and more people knew me where by the end of that show, um, when we looked like we were about to get canceled on season two, there were people who had my back and were calling folks to say, if we get canceled, try to get your hands on Rob Chavis if mm, you can. Nice. Um, so it was nice to be wanted. It was nice to have three or four meetings where everyone wanted to offer me a job. But one of those jobs was Blackish, and that's when I got there. Now, the secret about Blackish, um, you know, I'm always a strategist. I'm always trying to figure out the path and optimize and work hard and put myself in the right positions. Um, Brian Dobbins, who's my manager now and is also an executive producer on Blackish and works with Anthony Anderson and works with um, Kenya Barris. Um, I had met uh, an executive at Fox at the time who was like, do you know Brian Dobbins? You should meet Brian Dobbins. Like he doesn't look for clients often, but he might be looking right now. And you're the kind of person that he might gel with. Mm. Right. So we sit down at breakfast and, you know, a manager is taking 10 percent of your money and I ain't got no money. So I'm like, how do I give away 10 percent? Like, what are they really doing for me? 10 percent is zero, zero, right? 10 percent is zero, zero. So like, that's always the logic is like, you know, if he gets me something, it takes 10 percent is better than zero. Um, but in my mind, I'm like, OK, well, he knows the folks at Blackish. He's going to give me a meeting on Blackish. And he did. Mm. Um, because the second I read the Blackish pilot, I wanted to be on that show. Um, and, but didn't know anybody, didn't have those connections. Um, you know, met with Kenya, I think at the end of season one of Blackish, mm. um, right when they were starting to move stuff around. I think they had just put them up against like Empire or something. Mm. They were freaking out about that. They're like, there's only two black shows on television. Why are we on at the same time? They can only be two. <laughs> they can only be one. Right. That's Wednesday night rule. is black night Crazy. for everybody. Um, <laughs> But what I didn't know and what I had to learn is even after Global Hue, even after the law firm, even as I came to get this job, I'd been taught my whole life to try to figure out what the culture was and fit in. Right. And in writing, I used to have this thing I used to call my uh, my writer's costume. And it was like jeans and an unbuttoned plaid shirt and like a certain kind of like the cool uh, Chuck Taylors, mm. because that's like when I looked at pictures, that's what white dudes in writers rooms were wearing. And I was like, I just need to fit into this culture and make them accept me. And I didn't get my first job until I had a meeting and I was like, no, I'm wearing my J's to this meeting. Mm. Like I'm going to be me. If that's not what they want, then it's not going to work out anyway. But when I got to Blackish, I was still trying. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Trying to like, I can fit in in this environment. And so, you know, Kenny is somebody who the reason one of the reasons the show is so good is because he wants people to talk about their real emotions. Mm. So he'll lob a topic into the middle of it, of, of, of the room, and then be like, okay, uh, Michael, Michael Jackson's a monster. What do you think, right? <laughs> he's like, no, he's not a monster. He was wrong. It was Joe's fault, right? Somebody says it's Joe's fault. Right. Somebody says, I think he is a monster. Right. Right. And push everybody until 
he sees if you're going to back down. Mm. So it's like, okay, you believe it's Joe's fault, right? How's it Joe's fault where they're making, like, push you, push you, push you. Mm. And if people will dig in and have a perspective, then all of a sudden, and everybody gets animated about it, all of a sudden, this is a conversation we can have on TV. Because mm. we don't need one perspective. We need five perspectives. We need Ruby to have a, a perspective, and Pops to have a perspective, and Dre to have a perspective, oh, and the kids that. to think this way. And he knew he had that when there were four or five black people who disagreed about it. Mm. It wasn't like, no, this is what black people think. Let's go do this thing. It's like, no, spanking is bad. Saying the N-word is bad. Right. No, it's good. Right. You know, like, let's let's talk about it. Let's really find a real place. And I wasn't willing to have those conversations yet. So that's at the end of season one. I go back to the end of season two and try to do the same thing. And it doesn't work then either. Mm. So I don't get to blackish until season five. Mm. Um, and I had those shots. And I had to work on other shows. And I had to learn to be myself and stand up for myself because that's the only place good stories come from. Mm -hmm. And I, you can't think about what might be funny and think of a situation of like, what if the sandwiches, you know, has mustard? Like, it, it, you can't build story from that. You're like, oh no, this is what happened to me last mm -hmm. weekend. This is what it feels like when I apply for a loan. Mm -hmm. This is what it feels like to go with my daughter to a, a private school and I'm the only, everybody knows my name because I'm the only black family and we live right across the house from this school. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people are judging me because I don't feel like my career's on track yet. And I have shame mm. because I, I can say I'm a writer and then they say, what show are you on? And I'm like, nah, nothing. <laughs> nothing yet. Nothing yeah, yet, yeah. you know? It's coming. And, yeah, and, and <laughs> what does that feel like? Mm. And, and, and where do you feel like a fraud? Where do you feel like you're still building? And especially in a creative environment, how do you build past that? So I didn't get that job until my third try. Mm. And I loved the show from the outside before I actually got a chance to step in there and be in that room and help tell those stories. It's so crazy because, right, like the whole first part of your story is about how you're searching for the place where you can be your authentic self. Right. But even throughout the story, you're not being your authentic no. self. You're trying to match and look the way that the white boys in the, in the writer's yep. room look like, right? You're, you're learning to develop a point of view that is your point of view that you can anchor right. and hold. Um, and it's not until you decide to be your authentic yep. self, to develop your own point yep. of view and be willing to fight for it that you land yeah. this big job, right? Yeah. Um, what was it like working on Blackish? It was amazing, man. Like, it's. On my previous shows and in my previous jobs, especially in, in television, mm. it feels like, look, there's a lot of shows where I was the one black guy on the show and there'd be one black guy on the show. And I'm just like, well, let me defend this tiny island of blackness, yep. you know, yep. for the show and like make sure this character doesn't play themselves or we don't do anything stupid. And they look in the credits and they're like, well, Rob Chavis <laughs> was there. It's his fault. Um, and... Blackish was the first time I felt like I could use all the parts of me mm. where my entire story mattered. It wasn't just like, you know, Bad Judge was a legal show. She was like, here's a guy who's a black lawyer, even though the character is the, the bailiff, mm. you know, yep, hopefully, you know, he's going to have some perspective on this. Um or, you know, these guys own a donut shop and there's a young black guy who works with an older Jewish man, the store owner in a gentrifying part of Chicago. What does it feel like to watch your community go away mm -hmm. around all of these people and deal with the cops mm -hmm. and all of that? It felt like I was taking slices of myself and, you know, blackish Anthony Anderson plays a character who worked in an ad agency 
and, you know, is trying to raise his kids black in an environment where he's not sure they're going to get all of that and is married to, uh, you know, a high achieving, high powered wife who went to a fantastic school. And like just all of these parts of my life felt like I could play them out. I felt like I had a billion stories I could tell. I felt like if you start a story, I could tell you what they think because it's actually how I feel. And I could just put that on the page. Um, and learning how to evolve that and deal with that. And as I moved up through the ranks, having more not control, but influence on the kinds of stories we could tell and getting the best out of other people and pulling those stories out of them so that they could show up. Um, learning how to do that in that environment where I don't have the pressures of wonder. I mean, and, and look, Kenya and the team had done all of the work ahead of time of the network trusted them to a certain extent. They knew it would work out. The voice, the show had found its voice already. Mm -hmm. So we could just slide into that. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to establish that and earn that trust and build all of that up. So I had a sandbox that I could just play in. Mm -hmm. um, but learning in that kind of environment where it felt free and the actors knew what they were doing and knew who their characters were was so freeing and different that, you know, it being over now, I don't know if I'll ever be in that environment again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully I can build that environment on my own show or like whatever that is. It's such a unique place um, that you can't point at another show on television. It's like, oh, no, I'll just hop over there because mm -hmm. that's got to be the same. Like, it's, you know, it's a reason people say The Cosby Show and Blackish. Those two shows are 30 years apart. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that's how rare there's a once in a generation opportunity. Yeah, that's crazy. The um, I wanna I wanna jump on that because um, so much of what we fight against in this industry is people seeing black people as a monolith, mm -hmm. right? And what I hear you talk about is one of the things that was exciting about Blackish is because we got to show all of those different perspectives yeah. and all of the different sides of who we are. Um, at Revolt, we're super focused on that, right? Core to Revolt Black News is that we will share, we will always showcase balanced perspective, right? Mm -hmm. You're gonna have some people all the way on the left and all the way on the right and some people in the middle. We wanna demonstrate that we are not a monolithic group. When you think about hip hop, so much of hip hop, all people wanna show is sex, money, and drugs. Right. Yes, that exists. Right. But we're showing the layers. You get right. to hear G Erbo talk about mental health. You get to hear, you get to see Jim Jones do the weather, right? right? We're trying to demonstrate and showcase that we are not just a singular group, but even we have dimensions yeah. to us individually. Um, so that's one of the ways in which I think Blackish was clearly kind of trying to push things forward for the culture. What other ways were you guys trying? You're saying like, look, by year five, we've earned trust yeah. and we have our voice. Were there other ways that you all were trying to push the, co the culture forward or trying to start or push specific conversations that could be meaningful to yeah. the culture? I mean, I think it's there were places later on where there were certain topics that felt dangerous or like there are those those topics that mm. black folks are like we can't have this conversation in front of white people and like having it on national television on a network tv show is like that's the ultimate in front of white for people, sure right? for sure this so, isn't cable this ain't late night this is in front of the world yeah, yeah so we had a conversation about 
uh, Diane and they're taking their school picture and she's not lit right. So she's a darker spot like in the corner of this picture. Mm -hmm. And what does that feel like? And we use that to mine colorism inside of the black community. Then we had one, they're all Diane stories. We had a <laughs> Diane story where she talks about what it feels like to go to the hairdresser and get her hair straightened. And people didn't want to have a hair story. Mm. Um, but, you know, like Tracy Ellis Ross got to jump on that because she had started a hairline and she was very much in that space. So like, we got to have some of those conversations. And in the, in the final season, um, what was really unique was not only did we want to try to wrap things up kind of from an emotional standpoint of this family that everybody had been with for a long time, but we kind of made this decision, not that the whole show wasn't for us, mm. but it was like where we land has to be for black people. Like it, we were, we were very tr clearly trying to talk to black people because whatever the legacy of this show is, it has to land in a place of making black people feel good about mm, themselves. I love it. You know? And so, you know, my episode in the next to last hour, the episode that I wrote in the next to last episode is you'd seen Dre be mean to Junior for seven years, right? And tell him he doesn't get it and telling him he's corny and kind of resent him. Mm -hmm. um, and Dre's had this relationship with Pops where Pops wasn't there when he grew up and there was all this emotion. And having those three black men talk about emotions and where they land emotion. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. ...and why we can't open up to each other and who our armor is for. You know, there's a, there's a line where um, Dre's like, I've got to protect you from the world. Mm -hmm. And Junior looks back at him and says, the world isn't here right now. It's just me and you. Why do I have to have it on now? Mm -hmm. And that's a conversation Black men don't have with each mm -hmm. other. Not at all. And it's a conversation you have to earn the trust of the audience and the actors. And you have to have all of that history for it to mean something. Mm. And that's a conversation we couldn't have had before that. Because it honestly would have broken the show. Mm. But they can resolve that when we know it's the end. Mm -hmm. And that's a conversation that needed to be had uh, because of what we had displayed before that. Yeah. I love that you're breaking all of those things down, whether you guys were talking about colorism or hair or the way that men talk with one another. I just think that's math that a lot of people are just watching the show thinking it's good entertainment. Right. But again, they're not seeing the work and the right. intentionality that you guys are putting into it to have very specific conversations. Yeah. Um, so now the show is over. Right. Right. And um, my man, I'm so proud <laughs> of you. You went and got a, an overall deal. Um, something, you know, always when I'm, when I'm pitching to, to the, to the streamers or when I'm talking to brands, I talk like there's only a few free black people in Hollywood, yeah. right? Shonda, yeah. um, Ava, yeah. Kenya, right? Yeah. Are you free? Now that you got this overall deal, now that you know that for a couple of years, like you're locked and loaded, do you feel free? Do you feel like you can walk in and pitch anything and do anything? Do no. you? <laughs> <laughs> Short answer is no. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're not free yet. Yeah. I mean, but look. Having this conversation with you and saying it over and over again, 
moving out here, getting to this position, getting to an overall, being trusted enough to have a studio say, we don't know what you're going to do, but we want to be in business with whatever is next mm-hmm. is incredible. Mm-hmm. That part is freeing. I, I feel like, you know, for whatever I gave up to come here, um, I feel like I've caught back up, you know, like whatever I walked away from 10 years ago. I was going to say, what was that journey? 10 years. Yeah, 11 years. 11 years. Right. So whatever that, whatever career I walked away from that I had invested in, I invested in law school, I invested at Global Hue, building something and walked away from it. Mm-hmm. I finally feel like I'm back level Love it. with what that was, um, which that piece of it is free because I was incredibly worried about it mm-hmm. in between because all of those pressures were were building that entire time and there were dark nights and mm-hmm. times I didn't think we were going to make it and times where I'm maxing out credit cards and taking bad loans and like all of that stuff and like I've finally gotten to the point where that investment has paid off mm-hmm. but then from a creative standpoint now it's my job isn't to mimic someone else's voice and bring their vision to light. My job is to establish my vision and see what that looks like. Mm. And what I'm trying to do is be experimental about it. Like not guess what it is and go in one direction. It's try a bunch of different things and see what works for me. Mm-hmm. Cause I've been inside of other people's systems. What is a system that works for me? So, um, I developed a show with the comedian Earthquake, mm-hmm. um, just trying to bring his life to the forefront and like just capture his voice because he's so unique and he's so powerful and he's so funny and all of those things. How do I take this person's voice who's a legend mm. in the black community and probably should have had a shot 20 years right, ago? Right, right, right. And be the translator to the system of like, no, this is going to work. Mm. You trust me. You've seen him. I'm going to give you something that's going to work. Mm. You've never seen anything like it before. You might not trust it, mm. but it's going to work. Can I do that? Mm. I think I'm in a place right now of finding these authentic voices and giving them my superpower. My superpower is figuring out the show Mm-hmm. and giving them a platform for their voice. And they can't translate in that way. There's something mm-hmm. that they're good at. So it's like, how do I take that thing and put it on a platform so that it can work and people can hear what they have to say in a new way? Copy. So those are the opportunities I've been looking for. So so many, so much of the talent that you mentioned is Black. A lot of the storytelling that you've been doing, um, whether we're talking about the agency days or whether mm-hmm. you're talking about blackish, even superior is black. Um, right now, I assume when you pitch stories, you're pitching to people in rooms that are often not black. Mm-hmm. And when black creators come to revolt, one of the things that they like, you can almost literally see them breathe like a like a sigh of relief because they are pitching to people who look like them, who understand the cultural nuances. They don't have to double click into what it means to be a Kappa or whatever that is. Um, Talk to me about your experience pitching shows to people who may not come from our culture or our community. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge is understanding from a cultural standpoint, how we communicate with each other and how we treat each other. And that, um, certain attitudes aren't 
the way we could talk to each other and be mean or cut straight to the point or break down your worst um, fear, you know, right? For like, we know you well enough to know exactly what's going to cut you the deepest. And I'm coming for it. Right. And I'm coming for <laughs> I'm it. I'm coming for and it. And we're going to be cool after that. <laughs> and, you know, so the, a note of, is this person too mean? Mm. Or why would they say that? Or is that controversial as opposed to it just being the truth? Um, and that people can get past it. Having to have that conversation over and over again is tough. Mm. And, Honestly, when I put my my business mind back on, the thing that actually frustrates me the most is not is beyond the system looking at black people as a monolith. Mm. I think when they see a black show or they see black stories, they're automatically cutting off 85 percent of the market and saying we're making a choice to just aim at this 15 percent. And if for some, somehow we get all of them, that'll be fine. Right. Where they're making stuff for a general audience where they're like, at least we're aiming at 85 and a lot of other people don't have options. So they'll probably watch it too. And they might get the exact same results, but they feel like they're already playing in a bigger pool. Yeah. And like, it's hard if, if, if you want to do it on paper, maybe what I do is never going to make sense. Mm. But if you, let it live and let it breathe and let me make something, then give it a chance Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. see what it finds. Mm -hmm. And so like, I love that black people are just getting to do weird specific stuff now, Mm -hmm. like uh, bust down on Peacock, uh, killing it. Like those, those shows don't get to live, but getting, getting people to just be like, no, we're just gonna make this weird show about four friends. um, And it doesn't really have a point like getting black people to get that opportunity Mm. and just put a weird show out there because there's a million examples of just weird shows that are for niche For everybody else, yeah. Us getting the opportunity to do that and just be like, no, this ain't for everybody, but it's fine. It's been one of my biggest fights in my career, whether we're talking about um, commercials or media work, like exactly what you said. The second people see black people in front of the camera, they automatically assume it's for black people only, where y'all all all listen to our music, where you all, you know, are watching our shows that are popping, right? right? It's I've never understood it. You're all doing our dances, but all of a sudden I put a black person in it and now you're gonna give me the smallest budget for the smallest percentage of the population. Um, Last question to get you out of here, Rob. Are you a black creator who tells black stories? Are you a black creator who tells whatever stories you dream or imagine of? How, how does Rob define himself at this stage in his career? I, hopefully I can be both because the stories that I dream and the things that I feel and the things that I notice and the experiences I have are never going to not be black. Mm-hmm. Um, but our experience as specific as it is, is universal. And if I can bring that and I'm allowed to tell those stories, I think they can touch more people. Mm. So give me the shot. Like, if it's a time travel show with aliens, nobody's ever traveled through time or dealt with aliens. <laughs> they let white people make that show all the time. Right, 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 right. I'm black. I'm going to have a perspective of what that's like. Yeah. Let me make that show. Yeah. And maybe aliens feel like black people. And maybe I could pull from that to have that perspective. Yeah. You don't require them to 
tell stories about where they come from mm-hmm. allow me to use where I come from to tell universal stories. So hopefully I can land there. In other words, don't pigeonhole me. Right. Right? Like I'm trying to kick. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The whole door down. Man, this was... A phenomenal conversation. You know, one of my favorite quotes is people see you on the mountaintop. They don't see you on the climb. There's a lot of people who are going to look at Rob, who's got a multi-year deal at CBS and have no clue what it took to get here, how you dropped from 100 to zero, took 10 years to land ultimately where you um, dreamed of landing. And so I just want to close by saying, A, thank you for being here. Um, B, I'm so proud of you. Um, And C, I can't wait to see what you do with this overall deal, man. I appreciate Appreciate you, King. Love. I love seeing what you've done, man. I, I, I picked you up when you were... Just a, a skinny teenager <laughs> in college. Yeah, um, we probably made it like 17. I was yeah, probably like 17. Yeah, you were young, Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.